I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone, and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilize the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. Before we get into today's show, I wanted to let you know that Glow, the unmissable after-dark spectacle of lights, is back. Bring all the family and get ready to be wowed as spectacular illuminations light up RHS Gardens, Wisley, Rosemore, Bridgewater, Hyde Hall and Harlow Car. Book now on the RHS website before tickets sell out. It's almost National Tree Week. The UK's largest annual tree celebration starts on Saturday 26 November. Every year the country's conservation sector, volunteer groups and tree lovers come together to plant thousands of saplings to mark the start of the annual tree planting season. And today we're continuing the festivities with an episode chock full of experts and top tips about, you guessed it, trees. We'll be chatting with wildlife gardening presenter and author Kate Bradbury, science educator Jonathan Newell, and RHS Edibles team leader Paul Cattell. From the science surrounding these magnificent plants to a touch of inspiration about what you could be growing, it's all coming up on today's episode of Gardening with the RHS with me, Guy Barter. It can be easy to take a stroll here in Britain and completely overlook the marvellous trees that line our city streets and country lanes. But if there's one person who's not taking these plants for granted, it's wildlife gardening presenter and author Kate Bradbury. She spoke to us about where trees as we know them originated and what makes them so special. Trees started to evolve about 400 million years ago. There were tree-like structures growing on this planet 400 million years ago. It's astonishing. And some of them have survived mass extinctions. The maidenhair tree, the monkey puzzle tree, they're both living fossils. They've been around for millions of years. And now we still have them and they're really amazing species. And we are so lucky to live among them. So even the basic functions of the trees are much more complex than we probably give them credit for. For example, autumn colour, you know, those three colour pigments, the yellows and the orange and the pinks, they're in the leaves all year round, but they're hidden by chlorophyll because it's a more dominant colour. 
and then towards the end of summer the leaves stop producing chlorophyll which reveals the colours that have already been there all along and then the pink the cyanins are increased due to levels of sunlight so you know we do tend to get more autumn colour if we've had a really sunny summer because sunlight increases production of sugars and production of sugars leads to more pink colouring of leaves there's so much that we take for granted about trees so many little sort of atmospheric and environmental things that influence the way they grow, influence their colour at the end of the year. They're just amazing, they're fascinating. And it's wonderful that these amazing creatures can live with us in our gardens. We can have them growing among us. We can celebrate them in spring when they blossom, we can eat the fruit in autumn, we can watch birds land in them, we can marvel at tiny caterpillars and leaf miners using their leaves, which of course are then eaten by wildlife further up the food chain. Trees are marvellous in their own right, but in a garden situation, they add height and structure and seasonal interest. They can become a focal point of the garden. They provide shade. We can sit under a tree in summer with our feet poking out onto the lawn. We can eat the fruit. We can marvel at the flowers. We can watch the wildlife visit them. Adding a tree to your garden adds another dimension that just wasn't there before the tree was. It's, it's a thing of beauty. It connects us to the seasons in ways that lots of other things don't. You can briefly look out of a window. You can glance out of a window and the tree will be there in all of its spring blossom glory, or it'll be fruiting, or suddenly there'll be loads of birds eating the berries and you know that it's the time. The waxwings are here if you're lucky, or you know the redwings are here. And that means that it's winter and it's cold and the first flowers and the first bees, that means it's spring. It roots us, it connects us to the outdoors. It connects us to the seasons and I think that's really important because as humans we've evolved so far away from the natural world you know we all have very busy lives we all have very busy jobs and just rooting ourselves to the natural world via a simple tree that we've planted in the garden I think is hugely important I think it's a window into a wider world that we really very much need to reconnect with I think a fail-safe group of trees for all gardens, for all soil types, for all sizes, would probably be the apple trees. You can grow apple trees on dwarfing rootstocks and in pots. You can grow them as espalier trees, so they take up very little space. You can grow them against a wall or a fence. You can grow them as standards, where they grow to just a few metres tall. They don't grow very big or you can just grow a whopping great one. We tend not to grow whopping great ones anymore because you have to climb ladders to get up and harvest the trees. But generally, you know, apples, they've been bred and bred and bred over the years to be a really good garden species. And what I love to do, what I've planted in my garden, or my allotment actually, and in my last garden, was I planted apple trees that were sort of old heritage varieties that used to be grown only in Sussex where I live. So you can have fun with growing apple trees as well. You can do a bit of research, find out some local heritage species that grew in orchards near you and you can have a piece of history growing in your garden as well as obviously delicious fruit and a really good wildlife friendly tree. There's an old Chinese proverb that says the best time to plant a tree was 20 years ago and the second best time is now. You might not think that planting a tree is worthwhile if you're not planning on being in that garden very long or if you're not going to be old enough to see it reach maturity, but plenty of people will. And planting the right tree in the right place in your garden, that's going to be enjoyed and loved 
by generations to come who are going to watch it grow, who are going to feed from its fruit and look at its flowers. It's going to provide years and years and years of pollen and nectar for bees. It's going to provide years and years and years of leaves for caterpillars and then food for baby birds, which eat caterpillars. So we have to think of the bigger picture. I think if you inherit a tree in your garden and you love it, that's because somebody else planted it while thinking of the future with them not in it. And I think by you planting a tree in your garden, you're doing that same service for people further on down the line. In my last garden, I planted an apple tree and I moved two years later and I only got to harvest the apples once from it and you're not actually supposed to harvest the apples in the first year you're supposed to take them off but I couldn't bear to because I knew I was moving so I had these really huge apples in my apple tree I do sometimes think about the apple tree but I'm also really glad that the people who live there now are enjoying those apples I hope they're pruning the apple properly but yeah they'll be enjoying the apples and that's a really lovely thing to have given them I really hope I've helped encourage you to plant a tree in your garden today. I hope you can share the love of these absolutely amazing species that have such complex lives and such wonderful community spirits that just exist in our gardens and often go ignored. No matter how small your garden is, you can plant a tree in a pot, you can plant a tree in a border, you know, at the back of the garden, you can plant it as a wonderful focal point in the centre of your lawn, but just whatever you do, plant that tree. And as well as planting the tree, make sure you keep it watered, especially in dry summers. Water it for the first two years. And if you've got a tree growing near you that's been planted by the council or any other planting groups and they're suffering, give them a drink, be part of the community, and together we can all make things a little bit better. For more inspiration and an in-depth guide on all things trees, pick up a copy of Kate's book, The Tree in My Garden. A link will be in the show notes. Kate mentioned that she's growing heritage apple trees, but what does that even mean? Well, heritage refers to two things. One is trees that originated a long time ago and are not commonly grown and certainly not commercially grown nowadays, and also ones that are particular to a region. So Kate mentioned that she lives in Sussex, so she's hunted down trees that originated in Sussex, and our garden at um, RHS Rosemore in Devon has planted a collection of Devonshire apples. Devonshire is the epicentre of apples, so it's a fine and interesting collection. In my own area, North Dorset, we have a local tree called Tom Putt. We're not as lucky as Devon. Tom Putt is rather a nasty apple, but we all plant it just for the sake of the loyalty to one's region. My favourite apple is Ashmead's Kernel. It came from Gloucester in the 1700s. It's a russet. It's also the ugliest apple you can possibly imagine, but its flavour round about Christmas is sublime. I discovered in researching for this podcast that it's actually got quite a following in the United States. That's very unusual. British apples are not usually relished in America. So if you want to keep up the biodiversity in your region, maintain the different kinds of apples that are unique to your area, seek out local nurseries to find one of these apples and plant it up and see how you get on. There's something graceful about trees once they've shed their leaves in these colder months. It's guaranteed to make you feel good and put you in a positive frame of mind, especially if there's a bit of winter sunshine as there is today. Now it's time to head back to the classroom to meet science educator Jonathan Newell, also known as Eco Geeko, to his friends and YouTube subscribers. 
We checked in with Jonathan to get a refresher course on how trees function and to hear why these magnificent plants continue to enchant him. So a tree is really just a plant out there, but when I say just a plant, I mean it's a specific type of plant. It's long life is the thing that really distinguishes it there. You know, some of the oldest trees can be up to a couple of thousand years old. And so to achieve that long life, they have to have special structures. And I'll probably look particularly at their xylem. Xylem is a wonderful tissue type based on cells. It's from the Greek word for wood. And that's really what distinguishes a tree. So in its trunk, if you were to cut it down, let's not cut down too many, but if you were to cut it down, you'd see those annual rings, which is the xylem that grows each and every year as the tree gets a bigger and bigger diameter. These xylem cells are produced there and they turn into that tough woody structure, which gives the tree really the ability to support itself, to grow stronger, taller, to push up and to actually find its natural habitat and position way up in the canopy above the shrubs and above the softer annual plants that are way down below. So really, you know, a tree is just a particular branch of plants, but just with that, that sort of strength of character and that architectural design that sends it up into the sky there. So that's enough of the science. What I think we're really interested in as well is the symbolism, the spiritualism and the cultural backdrop that trees have provided for us over the centuries here in the United Kingdom. One of the uh, most interesting little stories, I'm going to refer to the alder tree, the common alder tree. The Latin name is Ulnus glutinosa. This is the tree that lives along our canals and our rivers. It's a wonderful, wonderful tree. Again, it's fantastic in terms of mitigating things like floods and, and that, that, you know, we, we seem to be having so much of these extreme weather events at the moment. So older trees are great. They're pioneer species. They live along the waterways. But way back in history, they grew extensively up in, I'm going to say, Sherwood Forest. And one of the things that I find fascinating about it is if you boil up certain parts of the tree, the leaves and the, the female flowers and, and the male catkins, one of the dyes that you can extract is a deep sort of rustic green. I think you know where I'm going here. It was the dye that was extracted to dye the clothes of famous people in history, such as Robin Hood. What a wonderful sort of link between a tree and folklore and customs. Who'd have thought the green dye that made those men with their green types, Robin Hood and crew, it comes from the older tree. Wonderful. So I just mentioned that the older tree is a pioneer species, and this means that it's really capable of colonizing, finding its seeds and beginning to germinate and grow in fairly sort of barren and inhospitable soil. Now, the reason that the older tree is so good at that is that if it should find itself in really rough soil, no fertilizers, no natural sort of nutrients in the soil, instead what it has, it has this symbiotic relationship with certain bacteria that live in its roots there are other plants that do this as well, but these bacteria live together in the roots of the older tree. So the older tree gives it spare sugar from photosynthesis so that the bacteria can grow. And the bacteria can convert nitrogen from the atmospheric gases circulating the soil and can give useful nitrates and fertilizers 
back to the tree. So it's a win-win situation. And with that in mind then, the alder can just begin to sort of populate across otherwise barren soil. And that's often, again, perhaps at the edge of floodplains where a lot of the natural nutrients have been washed out. Well, there's the alder tree, there's the bacteria. Life is still possible. So I think you can appreciate trees anywhere in your garden, if you're lucky enough to have a garden, or walking along the streets, walking along the edges of canals, riversides, and also parks. And certainly in my town, on just about any street corner, you're likely to find some lime trees. At the top of our road, there's a couple of lime trees, tall and imposing trees, which are really, really beautiful. Alternatively, as you walk towards the middle of town, you'll find some chestnut trees, because quite a lot of chestnut trees were planted in the Victorian era on the edge of streets, and also things like sycamores and Norwegian maples. So you can appreciate trees in a range of habitats, in a range of circumstances, just on a little afternoon walk. And I think all of them must be good for your mental health as well. During National Tree Week, it'd be really great if you could just, you know, perhaps have a little look and learn one or two, maybe even three trees over the week. And wouldn't that be wonderful if one day in the near future, you were able to just go on a little walk and be able to recognise these different trees, to recognise what they are doing for us, what they're doing for our climate, and, you know, they are real allies in us as we face climate change. Thanks, Jonathan. To hear more from Jonathan, check out his YouTube channel. The link will be in the show notes. Jonathan says how much better it would be if people were good at identifying trees. And he's quite right. There's nothing quite like knowing what the plant you're handling actually is. He mentioned apps. I've used a few plant identification apps and we're developing one in the RHS for our members. And I found them to be really good, much better than you might think. They're not perfect, but they're very, very helpful. Speaking of identification, this is the season when you're planting new bulbs and you're doing a little digging and planting trees and shrubs and winkling out established weeds. And inevitably, when this happens, you find bulbs. Well, you do in my garden where I've planted great numbers of bulbs over the years. And it's good to be able to recognise the bulbs. They're all different. My snowdrops are little round bulbs close to the surface. My narcissi are relatively elongated bulbs with a slight curve to them. And my tulips, those I haven't taken out and warmed up in the shed to replant, have got a kind of tunic to them, which is a dark skin. In the spring, take a note of where your tulips are, and then before they die back completely out of sight, lift up the bulbs and dry them in the shed, keep them warm and replant in early winter. The same goes for snowdrops. Before they die back down into the ground and are unrecognisable and unfindable, it's a time to winkle them out, divide them if necessary, and replant. These are just a few examples of how recognising plants is so helpful in becoming a better gardener and getting more enjoyment in your garden. But don't worry, over time you'll pick up the information and be able to identify plants better and better. It's just a matter of time and practice. You could say there's no habitat more historic or quintessentially British than that of an orchard. It's the subject and setting of folk tales, storybooks, and ancient odes. But orchards aren't just relics of the past, and they can still be found heaving with abundance up and down the country. We spoke to RHS Edibles team leader Paul Cattell, who manages the orchard at Wisley, to hear what the future has in store for the fruit trees there. 
The orchard's a really interesting subject at Wisley, I think, because yeah, it used to produce a lot of fruit. And so you could walk through there and see trees laden with fruit and uh, marvel at the quantity that was there and the range of different cultivars. There are perhaps over 700 different types of apple in that orchard. And so when they're all in flower, the blossom could be lovely. You know, it's quite impressive as a collection of fruit trees, but it's getting old, that orchard. Some of those trees now, a good section of that orchard are over 70 years old and they're no longer as fruitful as they were. So they're beginning to lose some limbs and they're beginning to decay a little bit and they're beginning to show more signs of disease. And so it's caused us to look at the orchard and appraise it really and think about what it gives us and what we want it to be. We've often heard comments from visitors who end up in the orchard that they wonder if they should be there. It feels a little bit back of house. It feels very different to other areas of Wisley because it doesn't feel like a garden. And we're about inspiring people to grow things on a garden scale. And really the orchard, you could say, perhaps doesn't do that in its current layout and design. And all that fruit that I mentioned that the orchard used to produce, that comes at a cost, I would say. And the cost of that was the way it was managed to get it to perform to that standard. And that was really a program of applying herbicide along the rows of trees so that they didn't have any grass or weed competition. You try and keep bare soil along the rows. Synthetic fertilizers would be put down by a tractor and a hopper, drive around the orchard, spreading the fertilizers out in the spring to feed the trees so they could produce that fruit. And then we would monitor for pests and diseases. And when we hit certain thresholds, the trees would be sprayed with pesticide to control a pest or a fungicide to control fungal issues. And it was by doing those activities that we were able to get big crops from that orchard. Not always, sometimes the weather would prevent that. You get a frost at certain times of the spring at critical moments and you may lose a whole crop. But part of our reappraisal of the orchard's purpose was to think about whether we wanted to continue doing that really. So, and really it doesn't seem to fit with the messaging that we here at the RHS feel is important to give to our visitors. We are increasingly talking about soil and soil health and how important that is across the world to maintain soil health. We're acutely aware of the loss of biodiversity across the planet and how important it is to look at how we can make a positive impact on biodiversity and how we can garden and approach horticulture in a sustainable way. And some of those activities I mentioned didn't seem to meet any of that logic really. And so it felt like we needed to have a different approach. So we're looking at that whole space and thinking about how can we change it to tick those boxes while still getting fruit from that space that people can enjoy and be inspired by to go and do something at home. I think it's a really positive step that we're making. If we're honest, if we do nothing, if we just leave the orchard as it is, it will die. Those trees are old and they need a different approach if they're to survive. When we appraised the orchard and the really things we felt we needed to change initially were to stop adding synthetic fertilizers and to think about how we could feed the soil to begin to create a healthy soil environment and to stop using pesticides and fungicides. So we started for a while having an organic approach to those sprays that had a gentler impact and had less impact on other species, on non-target species. But inevitably, even those approaches were killing other organisms in the orchard. It was a better approach, but it wasn't the best approach. So we stopped using herbicides. We started trialing different mulches. We were using different wood chip mulches to try and control that competition around the trees. We've used Wisley compost that we make on site, put that down some of the rows to feed the soil and it worked like a mulch and stop the weed and grass competition instead of herbicides. 
Unsurprisingly, there's been quite a dip in tree health and a drop in productivity. And we're not surprised by any of those things, but it means that we need to go further than those actions to create a healthy and productive orchard. And so we've been thinking about how we can do that. And one of the most important ways we can do that is by increasing the diversity of plants in there and increasing the space between those plants so that we have more light and air. The light and air will prevent pest and disease issues establishing so much. And by moving away from monocultures, from just big blocks of one thing, any pest and disease issues that do occur won't move through the whole orchard in quite the same way. So it will give us a better control of those issues. What we want to create is a productive, edible landscape that encourages visitors to explore along meandering paths and across meadows a diverse collection of edible plants. The majority of those plants will still be apples, but they'll be grown at a wider spacing. They'll be arranged in groves that are perhaps easier for our visitors to interpret than they are now. So we might have a grove of juicing apples, apples that are really good at pressing and making great juice all collected in one area. We may have late dessert apples in another area. But those groves, they'll be mixed with other edible species. There might be figs in there or mulberries, almonds, hazels, olives, loquats. So we begin to break up that monoculture and just increase diversity and interest, really. We're looking to encourage birds into the orchard as a way of dealing with some of the pest problems we may have, such as apple blossom weevil. So there will be deliberate plantings of wildlife habitats. That's all going to help with our pest and predator balance throughout the orchard. We're hoping we'll achieve a balance in the future that won't allow pests to get a real strong foothold through the orchard and cause the damage that they're causing at the minute. Those listening at home, I assume most people don't have the space to plant their own orchards, but that doesn't mean you can't be inspired by some of these principles that we're applying at Wisley. And those principles for me are about soil health and how important it is to create a healthy soil. That will look after your plants for you. So be careful about how you manage your soil and use organic mulches to improve your soil. And think about your garden space in terms of creating diversity whether it's in the orchard or across the food garden here at Wisley, we're no longer applying any pesticides. That's because we have a diverse landscape. We don't have monocultures of plant species. We have mixed plantings, we have flowering plants, and the same will be true in the orchard, where we'll have long grass, we'll have meadow areas, we'll have mixed plantings. All that mixing up is more closely related to what you see in nature, and it's more likely to produce good pest and predator relationships so that any pests that might start to eat your crops quickly get dealt with by natural predators that you've encouraged into your garden. You know, you don't need bug hotels, you just need a diverse landscape of plants really and a healthy soil and you'll be on to a winner. Thanks Paul. Paul is quite right, orchards need constant renewal. Every year, the fruit farmers of Britain take out some trees, plant more, and gradually adjust the mix of varieties to what the retailers, mainly supermarkets, want. And it's the same with trees at RHS Wisley. We're altering the mix of trees to look at new ones, to find ones that are best for gardens and to grow them in ways that gardeners are likely to want to see them in the future. I know there'll be some people who'll be worried, disappointed, concerned about the reduction in the wonderful collection of apples that we have at Wisley, 700 different cultivars. But taking the broader picture, 
the RHS is planting more apple trees at its other gardens. There are four other gardens, after all, often with local varieties and heritage varieties. And even at Wisley, we have a new global growth garden and apples and other fruits are incorporated in that as well. So we're still maintaining a wide variety of apples all around our gardens. And of course, don't forget, there's a national fruit collection that's open to visitors at Brogdale near Faversham in Kent. That's well worth a visit. All this talk of orchards has got me thinking. I've managed to cram nine apple trees into my garden and allotment, so that's quite a good um, orchard for someone who lives in the suburbs. But, you know, when you're waiting in dentists' waiting rooms and on long train journeys, it can be a lot of fun thinking about a fantasy orchard if time, space and money were no object. And the trees I'd plant and the groves of apples and the lines of pears and the plums and cherries planted in great numbers so the birds would be satiated and still leave some for me. Yes, it's a lot of fun thinking about fantasy orchards. My orchards are filled with apples because they grow best in Britain. And there's so many different kinds right the way from early ones, which I don't usually advise to grow in gardens because you can't eat them fast enough, to ones that you can store and eat through the autumn and early winter, and even a few after Christmas ones. British apples aren't great after Christmas, but if you need one and you've got space to store it, Winston is one of the best with nice red colour and good flavour and texture. I wouldn't neglect pears. I love pears, but of course the British climate isn't quite as good as it could be for pears. That might well change with climate change as it gets hotter and drier. Pears usually do best in places like Belgium and France. I'd love to grow cherries too. In my dreams, I'd like enough big cherry trees that the birds would get absolutely stuffed and leave some cherries for me. I used to work next to a cherry orchard in Kent, and during cherry season I would stop my tractor and climb out onto the mud garden, pick some cherries. That was always a lot of fun. So if you're stuck in your dentist's waiting rooms and feeling deep trepidation, take your mind off things by designing a fantasy orchard. There's no better way of passing some difficult moments. Well, that's about it for today. If you've made it this far through the show, please consider giving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. It's the best way to encourage others to listen to the podcast and help spread the love of gardening and trees. My gardening jobs this week are to start on the winter pruning, cutting back the hedges and trees that have got overgrown, sorting out the fruit trees in the approved way to try and encourage a bit of fruitfulness, and also gathering leaves that have fallen, making these into compost or leaf mould. It's a nice easy time of year too, so I should have time also to look through the seed catalogues and other catalogues and start planning for next year. And of course there's an awful lot of things to clear up as the foliage dies back. It reveals all sorts of tangles and messes that have to be cleared out and composted and stored away, all ready to get the ground in good condition for next year. But it's nice to take it easy at this season. After a spring and summer and autumn of concentrated effort, I just like to sit back and enjoy the fruits of all my labours. But that's all for now. So from me, Guy Barter, enjoy National Tree Week. I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. 
It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone, and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilize the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. Discover the beauty of an RHS membership all year round. Save 25% off an RHS membership today when paying by direct debit. Prices start at just £55.50. With a membership, you'll gain access to an array of special events at our gardens all year round. Be the first to know about RHS flower shows and get exclusive member-only days plus reduced rate tickets. And you'll have the chance to enhance your gardening know-how with access to free expert garden advice, monthly editions of The Garden magazine, and so much more. Terms and conditions apply. <laughs>